Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Anjan, uh, a friend who, who's loosely connected. We've, uh, uh, we've heard of each other, perhaps, and run into each other virtually, but we'll meet finally in London later this month. Uh, I wrote a small blurb about him, of his journey from being the suitable boy to slightly less suitable, and we're going to explore why that happened, how that happened, um, and we're going to discuss his latest book, which is titled Breakup. So Anjan, um, let's get started. Welcome to Network Capital. Tell us a bit about uh, your book. Why is it titled the way it is? Oh, thank you, Utkarsham. It's a pleasure to be here and lovely to connect uh, visually for the first time and then in person later this month. So the new book is it's the third in a series of uh, uh, books that I've written about memoirs about journalism in Africa. And the new book is titled Breakup because it both describes how my marriage and my uh, relationships, uh, my family enabled my reporting and uh, allowed me to go out and do the war reporting, the kind of war reporting that I did. In this case, in the Central African Republic, there had been rumors of uh, genocide that were building up there. And um, it was really my family and my, my marriage that allowed me to, gave me the courage to step out and go and do that reporting but ultimately, as happens with many uh, reporters and human frontline human rights workers, the work then damaged the marriage. And I wanted to describe that because these personal stories are very rarely told. Uh, as journalists, we're trained to turn our cameras upon the world, but we rarely do so upon ourselves. And when I'm reading stories, you know, uh, watching a good documentary, reading a good book, reading a good report, I always wonder who, who is this reporter? And why are they obsessed with this character? Why are they obsessed with this story? You know, who are their parents? Where do they grow up? Did they lose somebody? What drives them to often take risks to report this story? And I, I, I wanted to answer those questions for readers in my own books. On Network Capital, we focus uh, on all eight segments, but primarily uh, millennials and Gen Zs, because uh, both, uh, both Gen Zs and millennials um, have to take multiple career transitions. I believe you're still a millennial. Could you tell us a bit about how you became such an unsuitable boy from IIT <laughs> and Yale to, you know, Grand Ecoles in France to, you know, journalism in Africa? I think it'll be a middle-class Indian parent horror, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, totally. My my parents were shocked, and uh, you know, you can imagine. Yeah, in many ways, I had uh, followed a well-trodden path. That would have led me, I don't know, to a big American Hedge multinational fund in Google. New York. <laughs> yes, Goldman Sachs, and I had yeah. a job at Goldman Sachs, you know, as a mathematician. And uh, all, all my studies in, in India, you're you're sort of pushed towards often towards the sciences, and so I studied engineering, you know, done well in all the exams, like you had mentioned. Went to Yale, studied math, and it all culminated in, in a certain sense in a job at Goldman Sachs, and. Uh, I can describe what that moment was like. I, I, I sort of, I went up for the, to accept the offer and I went up the, their skyscraper and I looked down at the city and I thought, oh my God, you've got to pay me a lot of money to work here. And of course they were paying a lot of money. So it wasn't an easy decision, but uh, 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 
yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 the, the, the whole story goes, you know, I took a writing class at Yale. I, I realized this is what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to get to that place to be able to write for a living. And I, I remember opening the newspaper one lunch, the New York Times, and in the middle of the newspaper, bottom of the page, there was a story about how 5 million people had died in Congo. And I, it struck me and I thought, you know, how come this isn't on the front page? And one thing led to the next. And soon I was, I bought a one-way ticket to Kinshasa and I, with no journalism experience, I sort of showed up and began to try to learn journalism just with the conviction that, you know, whatever was happening in Congo should make the news and should be more prominent. And if there weren't that many journalists in, a, in the world's largest war, then I, th I saw an opportunity in that. And I thought, you know, maybe I can make my career here. Um, yeah, and, and it, it's, 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 you know, my, it's tricky to describe the relationship with my parents. My parents sent me to a school in India. You know, it's called Rishi Valley. It was founded by Jiddu Krishnamurti. It's a very free thinking, free spirited school. We didn't have uniforms, we didn't have exams. Teachers would come in and read a book, read two pages out of a book and discuss the book. And that was class. And uh, they really kind of encouraged you to pursue your, your dreams and your passions. And I think that's kind of what I did. I, I kind of, as, as long as I didn't know what I wanted to do, I studied math, I studied engineering, I did all the right things and I you know, did them well. But and in some ways though, that, that path gave me a foundation from which to launch myself and take, uh, in my perception at least, less risk because I always had something to come back to. As a mathematician, I felt like I could always come back to a big corporation. I could come back to uh, a, a, you know, corporate America, a corporate job. Uh, and, and that gave me the courage to go out. And of course, I never came back, but, uh, uh, but I think the knowledge that I could come back was vital and really important, that kind of safety net. And I think that's under, under you know, maybe underemphasized, understated, in, in many stories of people taking risks, you need, you need a, a safety net. And, and in many ways, Break Up, my new book, is about that family and home is a place I can always come back to in my mind when I'm out reporting in these wars. And you know, I'm always thinking, should I go forward? Should I turn back? And I need a place to go back to. And I never end up going back home until my job is done. But it's vital to me psychologically to know that I could come back. I could go home. And I can seriously consider that. And then I can think to myself, do I really want to go home now? And I often tell myself, no, I'll, I'll try to go a little, bit, a little bit further. I'll try a little bit further, but I, I, I might retreat back home. But often when you go a little bit further, as you've probably experienced yourself, you, know, you, you go a little bit further and then realize you can't go back. And then you go a little bit further, a little, you know, a little more, and then you a little more. And then, and then finally, uh, five or 10 years later, you realize you've traveled this, uh, this unusual original path. And you're very thankful that you lived your life in that way. Uh, but the, the, the safety nets, I think, are, are, at least for me, really important uh, to know I could go back and potentially start out again, uh, you know, from that yeah. place. And yeah, so that's kind of the process. It's, it's not like, you know, some grand idea. Uh, I read the newspaper in the New York Times and I was like, you know, in, and I read about the Congo and I was like, okay, I'm going to the Congo. I'm going to become this journalist. I'm going to write a book. No, it's, 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 it's little baby steps, one step at a time. And uh, I think having the relationships, the family, the friends, a uh, partner, to be able to, you know, find that courage, that little bit of courage that you need to take the little next step. That's what's key. And that's what, that's what I try to convey in my, all my books.
I always try to write about my books. You know, my first book, Stringer, second book's called Bad News, and the third book's called Breakup. I always start those journeys from the point at which I didn't know much about the country. I'm like you, the reader. I don't know much about this country. I read a piece of news. Uh, maybe I have a couple of connections, uh, you know, uh, more than, than you have. But I want the reader to feel what I feel in starting to plan that journey, taking that risk, taking those little steps one step at a time. I want to take the reader on that journey with me. And maybe they can't in their lives because they have families, they have jobs, they have you know, all kinds of constraints. But I, I feel that at, at base, that's the journey I want to take them with me on because that might give them courage and inspire them to take little baby steps in whatever direction, some other direction. But I think that's what's common, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a journalist like I was, uh, like I am, or like I was starting out to be when I had just graduated. Uh, whatever experience you're, you're, you're uh, living and you're trying to take risks, you're putting yourself out there, that's the, that's the core of the experience I wanna convey. And it, mine just happens to be in conflicts in Central Africa, with my particular background, you know, I try to be transparent. This is who I am. These are my prejudices. These are my, this is my background. This is my education. Come with me on the journey if you if you want to. Um, I'm not I'm not pretending to tell some universal truth, but I think in that specificity, I I try to tell a universal story about having a dream, you know, uh, having a vision, and trying to take and taking that risk and trying to make that come true and. And in, in the process, you know, like many businesses, like many people who take risks, like trying to find some way to be useful <laughs> and feel like my life is uh, worthwhile. Um, so from saving the world with hedge funds and venture capital to perhaps <laughs> writing about a different part of, uh, you know, of life, I think your career has really taken on quite a, uh, quite a, a turn, I would say. Uh, I believe a former professor of yours, William Dershowitz, he's written about solitude. One of his most interesting books is about how Yale students are excellent sheep. And he basically <laughs> talks about homogenization of choices and how people in their college essays usually talk about saving the world and you know providing safe drinking water in underserved parts and after that find their true calling in you know in investing of course and i think your career is quite the you know quite the contrary and i found that uh, to be very interesting so in addition to excellent titles that your book have uh, books have i thought that your personal identity comes across in each of them you were able to convey your story as well as uh, the story of the places that you're talking about so we're going to come to that but let me talk a bit about your influences early on so tell me a bit about your supervisor at Yale so I had a couple uh, one of whom I mentioned in my first book and uh, the other one whom I haven't mentioned but uh, my mathematics professor his name was Serge Lang and he he sort of uh, he helped me go really fast in mathematics. He saw that I had an interest and he I, I skipped all the undergraduate courses when I was an under, undergraduate at Yale. And I, I took the master's courses straight away and he would help me, you know, he would give me the master's textbooks. He would help me navigate and understand uh, these higher level courses um, without the necessary prerequisites. And so I was, I was doing mathematics in an accelerated way. I remember one day I went to his office. I was, you know, in my senior year, final year at Yale, and I told him, "Sir, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do a PhD in mathematics. I'm going to Congo." And he just smiled and he was like, he said to me, "You're playing the fool." 
And, but he said it in a playful way. And he said, I understand. And he pulled out a, uh, an edition, an old edition from the 60s of Rolling Stone magazine. And he handed it to me. And he said, uh, you know, I understand. I was, I was in the protests in Berkeley uh, in the 60s against the Vietnam War. And what you're doing is important. So you should go and follow your passion and you should do that. And that was, that was an important influence. And the second mentor whom I don't mention in Stringer, but who was also in, in, important, his name was Professor Peter, Peter Kindleman. And he was my uh, uh, undergraduate advisor. He'd known me for four years. And I told, I said, when I got the Goldman Sachs job, I went to Professor Kindleman and I said, Professor, I had this great idea. I'm gonna go to Goldman Sachs. I'm gonna work for five years, make a million dollars. And then I'm gonna go and travel and write. And he said to me, great plan. You, you'll be a different person in five years. You may not want to travel. And I thought about it, that, 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 it just hit me in that moment. I thought about it and I said, you know, he's right. I can totally imagine myself in five years. I've made the money that I wanted, but uh, now I want the house in the Hamptons. Now I want, I don't know, the, 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 the bright colored socks that bankers wear, whatever it is, I want the fancy car. Uh, I could totally see myself getting pulled into that life and getting, feeling so far away from this dream of traveling and writing, which I had at the time, it was still a dream. Uh, that I, it, it concerned me that I, I wouldn't do it. And I, I, and I thought to myself, professor's right. I, I, if I want to do it, I need to do it now. And, um, and so what I did was, you know, uh, I ended up getting a job at McKinsey. And, uh, and they were very, I told both McKinsey and Goldman, I said, I want to go to Congo. And Goldman said, oh, we don't know if we'll, we don't know if we'll need you next year. So we applied. Uh, and McKinsey said, oh, we'll just change your color on the spreadsheet. We'll want you even more if you have life experience in Congo. And so I thought, okay, with that backup, with that sort of uh, safety net, uh, I can go out and I can go and try to make myself a journalist in Congo. And so again, uh, uh, these mentors were really important for me to help me listen to that little voice in my head, you know, that said, you know, you need to go out. This is what you love to do. And it's not always an easy path. No path is easy. And I think we, one of the, fallacies uh, of our, our minds is um, that we tell ourselves that this is going to be an easier path. <laughs> it's never easy. Life is never easy. No matter what path you take, you're going to question yourself. You're going to wonder if you're, you're doing the right thing. Uh, and you're going to, you know, I think face challenges about, you know, uh, self-actualization, about fulfilling yourself, about you know, are you, are you doing what you're meant to be doing, what you're born to be doing? Uh, and money and all those secure concerns of security and all those kinds of things, they're always going to come up. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think we, we fool ourselves into taking sometimes a path we don't want to because we tell ourselves it will give us more security. And in reality, you know, uh, it, you're, you're going to, you know, face the hard questions no matter what. And so I, I think the advice from my advisors went down well. I, I, I went out, I had a taste of, you know, Congo, of, of the journalist life. I came back to McKinsey for two years because I realized how hard it is to make, make a living and, you know, sustain yourself as a freelance reporter, as a freelance writer. And so having a foot in both worlds somehow, um, somehow helped me take those steps one at a time. And, uh, you know, I worked for, at McKinsey for two years and since then I haven't gone back. But uh, knowing that I could uh, is still something important to me. <laughs> it's sometimes in moments of crisis, because as an artist, you want to take risks. You want to tell stories. You, you want to tell the stories that you're not sure about. You're not sure if they'll sell. 
you're not sure if uh, it'll resonate with people and you're not sure if like your next book, maybe it'll be your fourth, fifth book that, that does so. And so you want to be able to take those risks. And I think to do, to do that, you need either, you know, you're independently wealthy, you have an inheritance, you have a trust fund, you have parents who are very supportive, um, you know, uh, you've inherited an apartment or something like that. None of those were the case for me. So I had to build that safety net on my own um, uh, and, and try to live this creative life. And I think, you know, I think more and more people, especially in India, India is rising now. There's 50% of the countries under 25. Uh, more and more people are asking themselves these kinds of questions. You know, uh, how, how do I live a fulfilled life? And more and more people have access to this kind of the world. And I'm excited for what that'll bring. Hopefully more South-South connections, more, you know, my generation, we had to read the BBC and the New York Times to understand, to get news about Africa. Hopefully that won't be the case. You know, hopefully there'll be more Indians and more Africans and uh, more East Asians and, you know, uh, South Asians, and you know, reporting on each other. And the world will be more interconnected and we will feel not connected to each other necessarily through the West, but, uh, Organically, you know, our, our nations are more uh, connected through trade economically, but also culturally and through the news. Uh, that would make me really happy. Uh, and, I, and I see, and I see, you know, we're on the maybe on the cusp of that. Awesome, Anjan. Uh, despite the breakup and other ch changes that have happened in your life, you seem happy. Why? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, for all that we spoke about our parents and my parents, the Indian nightmare, the Indian parents' nightmare to, to have a kid, turn down a job at Goldman Sachs. And, and, and finally went back to McKinsey. Imagine if you turned that back down. I think they'd disown you. <laughs> well, well, they, in the moment, they were worried because I did turn it down in the moment. You know, they're always worried. Oh, he says he's going to come back. Is he actually <laughs> going to come back? <laughs> Is this just a ploy? Um, but no, I think, you know, the from each of my parents, I got different things. And from my mom, I got this feeling that I'm loved. And I think that's, uh, and that's what I try to convey in Bake Breakup. You know, these relationships, the sense of being loved, uh, the sense of having family, having connections, it's priceless. And that's what allows you to go out and, you know, do other things, take risks. And from my father, I got this sense of ambition, uh, uh, need to, you know, uh, a taste for migration, to travel, to construct myself through travel because my father had moved to Dubai when, you know, when I, before I was born. And that's where I grew up for the first 10 years of my life. So I, I inherited these things from my father, this sense of the world and ambition. But from my mother, I inherited, and this has taken me longer to realize, uh, just a sense that, you know, I'm loved. And I see this because uh, uh, she's transmitting it to my daughter. Uh, and I can see how my daughter, who's 10 years old now, uh, Absolutely, absolutely feels loved and has no problem, you know, conveying to my mother that she loves her, and it's 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 pure, it's complete, and I can I can now remember, in seeing my daughter, how I I had experienced that as a kid, and I think that's just uh that's where all creativity comes from. I think, you know, when you when you feel content and fulfilled yourself, then you can think about oh what can I do, what can I do for other people, what can I do, what do I want to do in the world, who do I want to be. Uh, if, if you don't have that, then I think you try to fill that void. You try to, you know, find money, find success, find, uh, find status. And all those, all those concerns are still there because that's what society trains you and conditions you to want. But uh, uh, in those quiet moments, when you ask yourself who you are, when you feel connected with yourself, 
and you know, I know, I know you've written about some of this yourself. Uh, you know, trying, trying to tap into who you are and what you really want to do. Uh, there's nothing as rewarding as that. And, and I have to thank my parents, you know, my mom and my parents, for both those inheritances that I've, I've gotten from them. I've, I've written about my father, because I think that's more, more that's a more difficult one. That's a more angst, angsty relationship. And it's easier to think about those and dwell on those and write about those. And the, what I received from my mother is quieter. And it's taken me longer to consider that, think about that and recognize and appreciate that. And I, I'd like to write about it. And I, I actually, two days ago, uh, I asked myself the same question that you asked me. And I wrote the first paragraph of a story about my mom, a, a piece of an essay about my mom and, uh, and how important it's been, uh, what I've received from her, but how, how difficult also it is to perceive that, recognize that, acknowledge it, and uh, and you know say thank you. And I turned forty this year, and uh, maybe you know turning forty is sort of a, a milestone, and maybe that's it. Sort of provoked. My mom made a video for me. You know, all these people in my life who passed through my life. I think it made me reflect on all the people who helped me, and what really, really at 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 at, at its foundation drives creative work and drives fulfilling work. Um, my friends wrote to me and you know, they, they're also turning 40, obviously my closest friends from childhood, from school. And they wrote to me and they said, you know, we're not gonna take money with us when we die. Uh, we're not gonna carry a suitcase full of stuff. So what are we doing? And uh, somehow they turned to me and because I made some of these choices early on uh, and we're having these deeper conversations about what we really wanna do, who we wanna be. Uh, we all come from a certain degree of privilege, which, you know, I think, I think of privilege as a safety net. Uh, if you have that safety net, then what can you do with it? And that's the question how we, you know, can judge ourselves or, you know, measure ourselves or you know, think about what we're doing. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't see it as a burden necessarily. I see it as a, uh, as a safety net and as a, as an opportunity. Uh, what can we do with this privilege that we've received? How can we live a fulfilled life for ourselves and and do something that we, we feel is meaningful? And that's really what I try to get across in the book. You know, you say that difficult I write about myself. Yeah, difficult conversations have been um, such an important part of uh, your life as a writer, as a journalist, but also as a son, as a friend, uh, as a, as a spouse, as a you know, in various relationships. Talk to me about some of the most difficult conversations that you've had in your personal life and what would you learn from them? And then we'll move on to your book, the specific aspects of it. Oh, sure. I mean, the maybe the most difficult conversation I had was, you know, the conversation at the end of breakup, which is with my ex-wife now. And when we had a daughter, she really began to rethink who she was, who I was, and she wanted me to be a more traditional father and husband you know, nine to five job, going out, doing my work, uh, being present. That's what she wanted. She said a father, a husband needs to be present uh, for the child and the family. Demand, no, no not, not, not an unfair demand at all. Uh, she had been a war correspondent as well. That's where we'd, we'd met on the front line of the war in Congo. She knew intimately my work. Before we'd had the child, we discussed whether I could continue my work and we'd both agree that we would. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I think I think just after having a kid, you change. You change in certain ways. You change in ways that you don't anticipate. And you know, people change, and that's that's the hard thing. And you 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 have to accept it. And that was a very difficult 
change in her for me to accept. And as you say, it's not unreasonable. Uh, and in the book, I try to, you know, describe her point of view as completely as I can. And that was, that's why this book took so long to write because the marriage was so precious to me. And uh, to write about some, something so beautiful that I had lost without feeling resentful that I had lost it, that took time. And I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to do it, you know, give it its due and write about, how, write about its beauty. Um, I'd say that that's maybe the hardest conversation I've had to have because the other conversation with my parents, my friends, you know, there's, all, there's a precedent, there's a rebellious kid. There's a, you know, you rebel against your parents and you forge your own path. That's a, that's a timeless story. But uh, a story of, you know, uh, a father, a husband who leaves, that's a far more difficult story. That's not a story that's been written about a lot. And it's written about maybe when it has unkindly. Um, and I wanted to explore all of the complications in that. You know, and my ex-wife and I, we've, Nat, and we, we've, we've um, overcome some of those conversations. We have a good relationship now. We, we you know, we're, we're both raising our daughter together. But uh, at the time, it was maybe the hardest thing for me to uh, swallow that uh, if I had to, I felt like she was asking me to choose between my daughter, who's a part of myself, part of me, and she was between that, choose between that and my work, which is also a part of me. And I had to give up one or the other. And I felt it was a really unfair choice, unfair position to put me in. Um, and that was very, very difficult to understand. And very difficult to get advice on, find mentors. You know, we spoke about my professors at Yale. I asked other men, older men, divorcees, uh, how they'd handle it, other reporters. I got very bad advice. <laughs> there was a lot of resentment, a lot of anger. Uh, somehow society hasn't found a way to talk about these things, I find. Uh, for men to talk about it, for families to talk about it, for war correspondents, you know, to discuss this, these kinds of things. and. And I think, I mean, my story is not unique. There are so many frontline human rights defenders, journalists who've lived the same story, but don't talk about it because it's it's hard and it's hard for to, society also doesn't want to listen to it necessarily. And part of the purpose of this book was just to open that conversation, not say that I have the answers, but this is my story. This is my little contribution to explaining and expressing what happened. And how do we as reporters, as frontline human rights workers, as you know, public servants, uh, all these categories of work that take a toll on families. How do we talk about this? How do we uh, oh, talk, speak about this openly with our families before you know the the drama happens, uh, so that we're all more aware of the path down which this kind of work leads us. Uh, I just want to. I just saw that as a kind of a blind spot, and uh, through my story and telling the story, also talking about the work, the reporting, you know, what's happening in the Central African Republic, uh, a forgotten war, another one. Uh, and uh, trying to trying to tell both those stories in, in the same way, illuminate both those dark areas in personal lives and, and in the globe, you know, together. Thank you for your candor, Anjan. I know that this must not have been super easy to talk about, but I'm glad you did, both in the book and in this, you know, podcast that goes out to you know, millions of people. Um, it's very important to share how we make difficult decisions, have difficult conversations. And uh, somebody once told me that uh, success in life comes down to the number of difficult conversations one is willing to have. 
Um, and another person told me is that, you know, all the people you can choose to disappoint, you should choose to disappoint yourself the least. So I think uh, <laughs> lots to unpack here, which we shall when we meet in London. But I just want to, you know, take a segue into the next part of uh, our discussion. Unless you have a final reflection on this difficult conversation or anything else that we have discussed leading up uh, to this. It's, it's a very rich, you know, uh, topic, as you say, and I'm sure thoughts will come to me as we speak. So let's, yeah, let's carry on. Just yeah. like, feel free yeah. to uh, share them uh, anytime. Talk to me about Syria and uh, Central Africa. What's similar? What's different? What's something that people should know about both of these regions that they often ignore? So at the time that I went to the Central African Republic, Syria was in the front page of most newspapers. That war, those wars broke out at similar times. Uh, they seemed on a similar scale, affecting similar numbers of people. Uh, and yet there was a stark disparity. The Syria was on the front page and the Central African Republic was nowhere. When I asked editors to uh, you know, send me to report on this war in the Central African Republic, which affected 4 million people, thousands of people had been killed, uh, very little news coming out. They asked me which Central African Republic. They didn't know which country I was talking about. There was no sense. And you know, I wrote about this today, actually, in an article in Foreign Policy Magazine that, you know, uh, Editors, especially in the West, they, there's a sense of authority about the news. And that, I, I believe that kind of leads to a also sense of uh, ignorance about the news's blind spots. When I bring up the Central African Republic, which is a blind, blind spot in the news, the editors think that because it's not being covered, maybe it's not important. And that's not true. It's not being covered for a host of other reasons, but it should be covered and it's important. And uh, where the Central African Republic and Syria maybe now are like is that, you know, despite all those reporters who went to Syria in the, when the war broke out and covered, the, covered that conflict, now it's disappeared. It's disappeared and Bashar al-Assad, the you know, president and dictator of Syria, is now being welcomed back into the fold, the, uh, you know, the Arab League. Uh, he basically seems to have won. He seems to have won not only the war, but also... Uh, a, a battle for his status uh, to be to no longer be a pariah, and uh, and this is what inattention does in Syria in the Central African Republic. It gives perpetrators a free hand uh, when there are witnesses, just people showing up, just journalists showing up. It can do so much to tie the hands of these perpetrators and ensure that you know uh, these wars uh, don't cross a line. You know. Extreme violence is not perpetrated on people, and uh, so, so that, that's some of the you know those are some of the similarities and differences between those two wars. The Central African Republic briefly made the front pages, you know, when when there was the ethnic cleansing of Muslims there, but again the journalists just leave, and the, and this is the model of international news that we are now uh, receiving our news from. Uh, when news breaks out, all the journalists show up there at the same time. Uh, to report more or less the same thing. And then when that news is deemed, that place is deemed unimportant, all of them leave at the same time. And then suddenly it's shrouded in darkness. And so all the perpetrators have to do is wait for the journalists to leave because they're going to at some point. And then they can carry on doing their, you know, uh, their work of, in, in darkness, in obscurity uh, and get what they want. And that's, that I believe is a serious failing of the news. And that's kind of what I, 
at that time, uh, uh, when I went to the Central African Republic, very few people were covering it. There were almost no African reporters. Uh, Central African local reporters couldn't travel out because they often lacked the resources, the car, the money, you know, all that kind of stuff. The radio antenna in the countryside had been destroyed by the government. So news didn't come from the countryside about massacres, about killings to the capital. And uh, there were a couple of foreign reporters from, you know, from the Guardian and uh, who came for a week, who came for a short time, did a couple of reports and, and left. And so that was a situation in which uh, I and a colleague of mine, Lewis from Human Rights Watch, we drove through the country and we ended up kind of finding, discovering, you know, on the one hand, uh, killings, massacres, and all this uh, 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 violence that wasn't being reported and should be reported. But we also found amid, in each place, we found uh, heroic figures who mm. in obscurity were, you know, whether it could be a cobbler who was stitching, you know, uh, stitching up people's sandals and shoes so that they could flee into the forest. And the cobbler was not fleeing himself. He was waiting, he was waiting it out and helping the others before he fled so that the others could flee. That's, that's an act of heroism. And then, uh, there was a, a, a Polish priest who drove out into, the, into this war zone and would collect information by hand from village to village uh, of, of who, had been, who was sick, who had been killed, who needed medicines, uh, who needed food, what, did, did, was their water contaminated? What, what, what did they need from, from, uh, from you know, aid organizations? And he would bring this news back to the, to the capital and transmit it to the NGOs. So they could, you know, send that aid, and he was doing this alone in his little pickup, you know. And that, for me, is war correspondence. And he was a, a priest, a church priest, uh, another priest. She made herself a human shield, you know, against the government. So in each place, there are these heroic, uh, very powerful figures, uh, who are really the core of, you know, you know, why I write the book. If if I don't find them, then you know, it's it's so bleak. But in 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 this bleakness. There are these powerful, amazing figures. Uh, in my second book, it was Rwandan journalists, you know, who were standing up to the government, the dictatorship, and putting everything on, their, on the line, their families, their wealth, their lives, uh, to report on the government's abuses of power. And so these are the people who inspire me to write books, you know, uh, uh, write about their stories, because often their stories are not told. They're not, you know, uh, Western enough. They're not. You know, I don't know, there's so many reasons. Uh, they're African, they're, uh, uh, you know, obscure, they're poor. They're, they're, they seem to, people see think that they live in remote places. And so their stories are not told. And I think they're, they're, they're some of the bravest people in the world. Their stories deserve to be told. And uh, in many ways, my journeys are journeys, you know, that I make to find these figures because they're, they're always there. Whether in Syria, whether in Central African Republic, there are always these figures who give up everything, who, you know, find a calling and, and, uh, and help other people save lives, uh, putting themselves in the line of fire. Uh, and that's the human spirit, I think, you know. In our bleakest moments, in our darkest times, we find uh, a reason to continue, a purpose, uh, a calling, uh, something that, you know, calls to us and uh, convinces, persuades us to give up a lot of things, a lot of security, a lot of uh, um, comforts, and uh, to go out and do something that we feel 
we don't ask any questions <laughs> when we're doing that kind of work. We know we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And, and that, that's just a, a reward you can't uh, put a price on. Tell us a bit about Rwanda, because the West in most of the world, parts of South Asia also gushing over the development. And uh, I feel that you take a contrarian perspective. Uh, tell us where you come from and uh, what what's one thing that people should pay attention to what they often miss? Um, so the, the, the adulation and the praise for Rwanda today is no different from the praise that the Rwandan government received in the years before the 1994, the tragic 1994 genocide in Rwanda. At that point as well, Rwanda was a donor darling. It was receiving aid from the World Bank, from Western governments. It was praised as uh, an island of peace in a sea of instability. It was uh, praised for its government, efficient government programs in the health sector, in the education sector. And yet uh, we saw genocide, a tragic genocide in which one million Rwandans, you know, mostly Tutsis were killed. The Tutsis were targeted in that genocide in 1994. And, uh, and, and, and I think it's very little has changed in that fundamental way today. Rwanda on the surface is very organized. It's very, uh, uh, it, it looks like it's developing, but the fact is back then and today, uh, it, is, it, it, it is and it has been a dictatorship. And it's not a surprise that dictatorships can build schools, build roads, build hospitals. Bashar al-Assad did that in Syria. Gaddafi did that in, uh, in Libya. Saddam Hussein did that in Iraq. The problem is the, the concentration of power in Rwanda uh, today uh, in Paul Kagame, the president in the dictatorship in Rwanda should give us all reason for concern. In any country, it should give us reason for concern, but especially in Rwanda, because in the past, that concentration of power has led to historically uh, ethnic cleansing, you know, uh, ethnic targeting of, uh, of Tutsis and then the genocide in 1994. And so the stakes in Rwanda are just so much higher. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, I, I think right now, Presidents and leaders like Paul Kagame benefit from what I think of as a wave of post-colonial support for populists. Paul Kagame stands up to the West. He calls out the West for colonial crime. And in many parts of the world, including you know, India, where, you know, where we come from, there's a, there's a hunger for leaders who uh, speak about Western crimes, the you know, Western hypocrisy, and I think there's such a there's such a thirst for leaders who stand up to the West and say these things that we've been all, all been wanting to hear for so long, that people are willing to look away from the crimes. And that's happening in India, that's happening uh, in Rwanda, that's happening in Mexico, that's happening in Turkey. It's happening all over the world. There's such a hunger for a post-colonial order whereby nations in the global South, former colonies, stand up for themselves, craft their own identities, and I, I sympathize and I understand that coming from India myself. I, uh, I support that. I, I just think it's unfortunate that in trying to craft that, that independent identity uh, uh, around our nations and you know, our, our, you know, our peoples, um, we're giving a free hand to some of these leaders and we're allowing them to perpetrate crimes. And there's credible, there's credible evidence and there has been for many decades of Polkagami's crimes in Rwanda, in Congo. We're talking possibly hundreds of thousands of, of deaths, uh, de crimes, killings that the UN, UN investigators have classified as possible acts of genocide themselves. So Polkagami himself could be you know, uh, culpable of that. 
uh, and he's been given a free hand because of Rwanda's tragic past tonight. And, and uh, many people feel that, you know, Rwandans are content with Kagame because he's bringing economic development and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, they're happy for the peace, which is so precious in the, in the shadow of the genocide. Uh, but that's not true. Many Rwandans have fought uh, to build a more democratic uh, nation in Rwanda, to build the kind of institutions that will prevent a future uh, incidents of violence or ethnic cleansing or possibly genocide. They want that and they've given their lives for it in many cases. And many of them are now living in exile because Fokugame has refused to give up power. And so the, many of these brave Rwandans are now you know, giving on lecture tour in the US instead of helping to build their nation. And uh, Kagame, like many dictators, many leaders has crafted this myth around himself as the savior of Rwanda. And I think we should all be suspicious when any person says that they're the savior of a nation, that the nation cannot exist or cannot, uh, cannot continue without them. That's a failure of, of governance, of leadership, uh, a real success of leadership and governance is to build institutions so that you know, when, they're, when, when they're gone and everybody goes at some point, uh, there's a peaceful transition of power. And uh, Kagame has put Rwanda in a situation today where like many dictatorships, uh, the most likely uh, 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 consequence is that there will be violence when he hands over power. Uh, it, it won't be a peaceful, Rwanda's never had a peaceful transition of power. And it looks like Kagame is setting himself, setting up the country for another uh, violent transition of power. Uh, you know, uh, he's grooming his, his kids to take over. And uh, yeah, all of these things, we've, we've seen this so many times before, uh, where dictatorships lead us and we should just be really concerned. And, and uh, if we care about the Rwandan people and their future and their right to have a peaceful future, um, uh, then Kagame has clearly failed in that respect. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, tell us about some of the important but underlooked uh, geopolitical lessons from breakup. Conceptually, what are, what's the new worldview you want millennials and Gen Zs to learn about? It's interesting. Um, the Central African Republic taught me that, you know, <laughs> what happened with colonization, our nations haven't forgotten. So before the French came and colonized Central Africa the, and the Central African Republic, by the way, the French came, there was a powerful leader called Rabi al-Zubair. And he was, uh, he had a powerful kingdom called the Dalakuti, which is the door to, which means the door to the forest. And the French came, they defeated him. He resisted, but they defeated him. They beheaded him and held his head up as a trophy. So it was very brutal. Uh, and, and then the French took over and for the last hundred years, we've kind of taken for granted that, you know, Central Africa and the Central African Republic is uh, a Francophone part of the world. Uh, we've forgotten that Muslim history, Islamic history in that region, but the Muslims haven't of that region. And so the whole war in the Central African Republic was started by a small group of Muslim rebels and fighters who wanted to recapture that glory from that past. And I see this all around the world. You know, all around the world, our nations, former colonies, we want to recapture that sense of glory that we had before Western nations came and took over our countries. And, you know, uh, uh, transformed our nations and told us that our histories were were uh, primitive, were savage, were uh, you know, uh, and, and that the West was a, a symbol of progress, and that we should all aspire to be like the West. And I see that's that's one of the big lessons that I see from my reporting, though, that you know, so many nations are now you know wanting to shake off the West, 
and they're willing to you know start conflicts uh and, and perpetuate conflicts in order to do that now in the in the central african republic uh the muslims they 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 took over power you know the rebels that i spoke about they took over power in the central african republic they were defeated by the christian majority but they succeeded in in another sense in the sense that the france pulled out of the central african republic it's pulled out its troops and uh it left a void and russia has entered that void and the wagner group is active in the central african republic they're they're mining gold and diamonds and they're using that money to finance their war in ukraine and uh there are many similarities uh, you know uh ukraine is trying to push back the west and nato uh, uh sorry russia is trying to push back nato and the west from its borders and here in the central african republic these muslims are trying to push back and push out the french and uh there's now more of this post colonial order that i see russia china india they're all trying to form alliances and trying to you know create a new world order that is not western dominated and uh and i think this has profound con- uh, implications for business for culture for identity uh for host of things the west will, we're entering a multipolar world and uh and many of these nations are willing to take great risks to uh put their nations into a new world order to to you know shun the west uh shun the lucrative contracts that come with the west with western support um and that's that's the main thing and in the, in a sense i understand it uh you know the generation i grew up in we had to go my parents my father asked me when i was growing up where do you want to go when you grow up do you want to go to europe or america both those places for him were symbols of success and then i went to congo which for him was a symbol of failure a failed nation why would you go there and uh, i think that's that's a journey that our generations you know oh, gen z and millennials yes so you, i went i went to the west you know following my parents uh wishes but uh i think our generations are now looking to other parts of the world we see the world is not just dominated by western interests and by western uh, authority and uh uh cultural supremacy we're trying to build ourselves and you know make our futures make our destinies in in many other parts of the world and i feel like i i kind of my story kind of bridges that uh because i kind of followed my parents path and then i broke away from it and uh, but i think it's going to become more and more common place i think you know yeah we're going to see other parts of the world as places of opportunity as places of success uh possible success success in different ways we're going to redefine what success means and uh and i think these are all beautiful things and i think that that's what speaks to our generation more uh and like i mentioned you know half of africa is under 25 half of india is under 25 uh new ways of thinking investing is going on in africa as well so you never know i mean um, a lot of economic potential can also be uh, unpacked there um absolutely so anjan and i are not here to discuss advanced geopolitics or anything yet and neither are we proposing one particular world view but anjan um many people may not know about the wagner group do you want to explain the business model and how things work a bit more uh, uh sure. slowly so sure. that everyone can get get a sense of how that group works and uh what is the significance of it before moving on to any other lesson that you want to pay uh, talk about um sure yeah i can just briefly mention so the wagner group is is a mercenary group that has now become crucial in russia's uh war on ukraine and uh it it was started by a man who used to uh cater 
to Putin in the, in the Kremlin and he used to cater food, but now he's become the head of a mercenary group. And uh, they, they have been active in the fight for Bakhmut in the last weeks, a strategic city uh, in the east of Ukraine. And uh, they've been used as a proxy army by Putin uh, and by Russia. And uh, what's happening is that they've constructed a business model whereby they are now providing security services as mercenaries to many African nations, uh, including the Central African Republic. They provide, you know, they train the Central African Republic army. They provide bodyguards to the Central African president. And in return, they get mining concessions. And so they mine lucrative gold and diamonds. And they use this for their military operations everywhere. Right now, most prominently in Ukraine. And so this multipolar world that we're talking about it's not just an abstract desire. It's, it's, having, it's uh, having very real effects on conflicts around the world, including in Ukraine, whereby uh, this group is uh, entering the void that has been left by France and the, and the West and forging new alliances and using it to promote Russia's uh, geopolitical interests. And we're gonna see, and China has been doing the same across Africa, uh, you know, lucrative uh, infrastructure projects in exchange for votes in the General Assembly or, you know, support for Chinese uh, uh, strategic interests such as Taiwan. And so we're seeing more and more uh, a shift in this world order. And uh, as you say, Africa, you know, Africa, is, uh, there's a lot of investment happening. Uh, uh, there's a lot of economic opportunity. And who is that going to benefit? In the past, it was automatically assumed that it would, you know, uh, that it would benefit the West. And because those investments were made by the IMF and the World Bank, that's no longer true. Russia is making investments in security. China's making investments in infrastructure. And they're going to ask for, they're asking for- uh, Special uh, privileges, returns, you know? Uh, exactly. Very, very exactly. interesting alliances that could be formed. I think uh, it's very important and hopefully people will uh, you know, make notes while they read their book and debate and discuss with you when they meet you, hopefully in person or uh, you know, through the Twitterverse. What are the implications for India and are there any other geopolitical lessons you wanna you know, talk about from breakup? Sure, I, I mean, I, I wrote an article some years ago about India in Africa. And what struck me was that India has a, has a long history in Africa. The, the British Empire brought Indian endangered laborers to East Africa to build railways. And so there are Indian communities in East Africa and South Africa uh, and across the continent, really. But, and, and you know, in countries like Kenya, Indians have a huge part, they play a huge part in the economy. And yet the Indian government has been noticeably absent. Uh, they have, it has not tapped into this Indian diaspora. Uh, China has no diaspora to speak of, or very small compared to India uh, in, in con on continents like Africa. And yet China has made this huge push to, uh, and to Russia as well, to forge relationships with African governments and to you know, uh, forge economic ties and cultural ties now. And India, despite this history that it could leverage, uh, it struck me how it's sort of sat back and not leveraged that, not sought to uh, build those relationships. And for me, it speaks to, you know, India seems to ha not have had this imperial uh, ambition uh, to kind of, you know, India has been, all, seems to me very sort of, very content to uh, manage affairs within its, within its sort of general borders and to not seek to play huge roles in, on other continents. And that seems to be playing out now. And I, I, and I wonder 
what role India will play or wants to play in this new world order that is, uh, you know, uh, taking shape before our eyes. And uh, uh, yeah, India seems very concerned on, on, on shaping that identity within its borders. What does it mean to be Indian? Uh, which religion are you, uh, are you from? Which, uh, what, uh, where have your people, where, where do you trace your lineage? And those kinds of things. And this, this Hindu and Muslim divide that, that we're seeing that is more prominent in India now. Uh, uh, that seems to be more of a concern, internal uh, questions of identity rather than sort of playing a greater role in the world. And I think, you know, I think to truly claim a place uh, and truly find ourselves, we need both. We need both to craft that internal identity and we need to have a perspective on, on what's happening in the world. Our world is too global for that. And, we, and part of that is sending out journalists and writing and, and telling the stories about the world in a way that makes sense to us, not in a way that makes sense to the, to the West or other, other people. And uh, China's doing that to some extent with Xinhua, their, their new global news agency. You find correspondents everywhere. They're trying uh, in a small way. Uh, but India, I don't see that. And uh, when I've asked Indian or even Singaporean TV channels to you know, send me out and send out crews to you know, report on the US, for example, when Trump was elected, I asked, I asked a Singaporean national broadcaster, Channel News Asia, to send me out to, to the US. And they said, oh, why don't you report on Indians in America? And I said, no, no, I want to report on America. They said, how about Asian tycoons in America? And I said, no, I want to report on America. And to me, that struck me as a smallness in the mind. They didn't think, they don't feel that we have the authority as Asians to report on the West in the same way that the West has an authority to report on us. And I think that has to change. We have to change that in a very profound way. Uh, if, we're, if we're to claim our own identity and if we're to you know, fulfill the potentials that our nations have and, and propose other alternative ways of development, of thinking about the world, of religion, of culture, uh, we can't rely on the West for, for all these things. Uh, and, and I see that happening, but I, I wish it would happen faster. <laughs> uh, any other uh, final takeaways from the book? Anything people should uh, keep in mind or think more about for the future? I really appreciate our conversation. I think you know, you're a person who's been very concerned with this question of passion versus security and uh, how you make these life choices, how you've made those life choices yourself. I was very interested to read your story. You'd worked at Microsoft for many years. And then in a very structured, thoughtful way, you uh, uh, took that leap uh, to create network capital and to ask yourself, you know, what, what, uh, what are the conditions that I need to meet in order to, what are the safety nets? You know, what are the conditions that I need to meet so that I can psychologically feel comfortable doing what I feel needs to happen you know, in the world, where you're serving a need that needs to be met in the world. And I really admire that. And I find a lot of uh, 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 complicity or you know, that resonates with me a lot that uh, uh, we could choose, you and I and a whole bunch of people may be listening to this, we could choose uh, to take uh, an easier, you know, well-trodden path that would you know, make our parents happy uh, that would fulfill all the all the roles we're expected to fulfill fill, fill in society, uh, and yet uh, you know it's it's not a reckless act. 
we listen to ourselves, we listen to that little voice in our heads that tells us we need to do something else. And we try to go about it in structured ways. And I appreciate that you asked me these questions about how I thought through those decisions, because they're not reckless. They are you know, thought through, there are safety nets, uh, are not being foolish uh, and not being heroic in a crazy way either. You know, uh, as some people might cast it out to be, uh, I'm, I'm making very measured, uh, measured decisions, taking little steps. It's just that after 10 years, those steps add up. And now yeah. we can talk about it here. You know, we've made those steps. And so, but it, if you go back and think about them, each of those steps was very uh, frightening and, uh, but very important. And we each needed to find the mentors. We need to find the friends, the family, the you know, connections to help the voices to help support us on those journeys. And I think all these things help us discover and connect with who we are. And when we connect with who we are, who we, are we connect with the rest of the world. And I think those, those are, you know, in Hindu philosophy and most religions, we talk about that. Uh, um, we come to a state where we feel uh, one with the world. And I think this journey is very much trying to actualize that. And uh, yeah, that's what I would leave, you know, listeners with. Uh, to try and find, create those conditions to listen to yourself and connect with the world in whatever way feels right to you. And uh, yeah, you've done that with Network Capital. I've done that with my, with my work, my books, my reporting. And so um, uh, I'm grateful to find and meet people who think in similar ways and to you know, share our journeys and help each other as, as we can. I think that's, that's the dream. Anjan, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your candor uh, and your insights through this conversation and your books. Um, I think you've become even uh, more suitable, I would say, uh, after being published <laughs> in New York Times and Foreign Policy, having best-selling books. So I think uh, you have redeemed yourself. It's okay to quit Goldman Sachs and do your thing. Um, but even if you don't get published in the New York Times, I feel still it's worth it. And I think that's the point that we want to make through this conversation, that success, the slow compounding is a very painful one, but it's worth it. And even if the results, you know, take a while, I think it's still worth it because there's pleasure in the pursuit. I hope Absolutely. everyone takes away that from the conversation we just had. Thank you, Utkarsh.